Welcome to Everything Life Coaching. I'm John Kim. And I'm Noelle Cordeaux. We are the founders of Journey Coaching. We're super passionate about all things coaching and want to share what we've learned from over a decade of coaching and training over a thousand life coaches. Dive deep into a more meaningful career, find freedom, and make an impact on the world around you. Hi, everyone. It's Noelle here today. Welcome to Everything Life Coaching. We have a special treat today. We're going to be talking with one of my dearest friends, oldest friends, and one of the instructors at Journey Coaching about the role of intersectionality in coaching, which is such an important topic. So Dr. Justin Citron, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, yay. It's been a long time. And as friends, I'm glad that we get to connect in this space and that I get to share the wonderful bits of you with all of the folks who listen to our podcast each week. So welcome, welcome, welcome. And you know how warm it feels inside of the Journey community. So I'm excited to extend um, that feeling here. Awesome. I'm excited to be here and have this chat. Yay. So let's dive in. Please uh, tell me who you are, uh, what you teach for our Journey Coaching Intensive, and how you are affiliated with our organization. And how do you know me? All right. I might need a refresher of some of those. Okay. I don't get to them all. (laughs) Um, I am Justin Citron. My pronouns are he, him, and él. I'm a bilingual English and Spanish human being. I am an intercultural sexologist and sexuality and relationships coach and educator. I am also an associate professor at Widener University in Human Sexuality Studies. And the center of my work is culturally responsive practice in the sexuality space. Most of what I do is coaching and education. And so teaching people how to both include sexuality as part of their practice because Lots of psychologists, social workers, doctors, nurses, police officers, firefighters don't all know that sexuality is actually a part of what they do. And so I work with them to understand first how to put sexuality as part of their practice and then also how to respond to the diversity of their clientele, whoever it is that they work with, and to respond in ways that center the culture of the people they're serving. So that's kind of like what I do. I also do some research and program development. Most of that work is community-based participatory research. So really focusing on letting the community that we're working with tell us what their problems are and what questions they have that they want to answer. And then us bringing our academic and professional skills to the table to help them solve those problems. And then once we know the answers, we work together to implement new programs, design new research based on the new answers we have. Um, but really the idea is that we lift up people's everyday lives and not, you know, exploit or use research participants um, for our own academic or professional gains, because there's been a lot of harm done over the years to people's sexuality, gender, overall health by institutions like medicine and education. And so I see a lot of my work in my career to be about helping be part of the community that turns the the uh, path we're on to one that is much more community centered. That's so awesome. Ben, thank you for sharing all that. I have so many questions. Um, And one word that I want to stay with as we truck along is culturally responsive. So 
being culturally responsive is one of the things that um, is super important in the world of coaching. And that's one of the things that you do for our organization. Um, so let's dive in part two of that question. What do you teach at Journey and how do you know me? So I know the wonderful Noelle Cordeaux okay. from working <laughs> at the university together. So Noelle used to work in our alumni division. Believe it or not, one year we were having a homecoming event and Noelle and I ended up having a debrief after the event about life. And I think we connected about being both divorced people. And I was kind of in the midst of going through a divorce. And I believe some tears were shed and the birth of a friendship was happened. It's one of those like soul to soul moments where you realize that the person you need right now is in fact right in front of you that you did not know had what they had to offer. And so I think that was it. And then we, then it was a lot of coffee, a lot of walks, a lot of visits to each other's offices. And we also got to work together, which was pretty freaking fantastic. Um, and then it turned into like the friendship that it has been for many teens of years. <laughs> many teens <laughs> We're like years. an adolescent in our relationship. Noelle. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, part, part of that work was um, getting to work together was I ultimately went on to pursue human sexuality um, through master's and then applied and got into the PhD program. You were my professor and advisor for a little while. Yeah. And the, I think Journey was in its infancy as just an idea in some of those years. And we, we kind of had lots of talks about um, the work that I do around program development, the, the desire you had to help make the world a better place. And that just made us like even more friends because we were friends already professionally and personally. And then it was like friends in the next leg of our life together. And honestly, your starting journey and working on the projects that we worked on together um, between Widener and Journey really led us, led me to realize that like this whole coaching thing is actually something that I really wanted to do because I had done, I had been trained in sex therapy and counseling um, in graduate school and I liked the work. I didn't really like the model um, that therapy or counseling rely on to do the work because it is very like pathology oriented and very um, diagnosis focused and coaching is really different. Coaching is active. Coaching is engaging. Coaching is client centered. Coaching is about goals and achieving those goals together. It's about transparency and togetherness. And so, you know, after a few years watching journey happen um, this last year, when I kind of hit my rock bottom with work, I was like, you know what? I think this is in me and I think this is what I want to do. And ever since I turned that corner, I'm just happier. I feel like my life's mission is more centered around who I am as a human being, um, which we can talk about in a little while about like who I am other than professionally. Um, and I just get so much out of teaching, so much out of working with my coaching clients because it's it's about community and togetherness, which I think is so much about who I am as a person. So, you know, it was what what do you teach for our certification program? Oh, yeah, I teach intro to intersectionality. And in the course, we cover what intersectionality is, how it shows up in the coaching environment, the skills we need to use to 
work from a place of intersectionality and understanding the way that intersectionality happens for our clients and for us and between us and talking about how we develop our own intuition and self-awareness to better understand the biases we have, the perspective we have, and how that might be a strength in the work that we do as coaches, but also how it might limit some of what we do because sometimes our perspective is limiting. Um, Absolutely. There were two things in there that I wanted to highlight that I think need a little bit more explanation for folks who might not understand. So one of the things that John and I talk about often on the podcast is the difference between coaching and therapy, because John is a therapist. And one of the things that you mentioned was um, the medical model and the word pathologize. And that would be a great opportunity to really break this down in terms of um why you might be moving away from a model that's based on pathology and what you see as the future um, turning towards a more action-oriented, inclusive model. Yeah. So at the root of the the medical model, the pathology model, is that we use data from research to determine what things are quote-unquote normal, that they're prevalent in the population at large, and what things are abnormal because they're not present in the population at large. And so they're, they're things that are sort of outliers. And so something like depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, those are all diagnoses that some people experience this phenomenon and that there's a similarity in the experiences of the people who experience that same phenomenon. So like people with PTSD have a set of criteria that are used to diagnose it and that that is like what names this particular pathology. Um, Same thing, depression, anxieties, and other different quote-unquote disorders. The problem with that approach is that it relies on norm-referenced research, which is this idea that like there is a normal and then everything else is outside of that normal. The problem with that normal is it's usually, it has been defined in Europe and the United States and and, uh, Canada and other countries that follow sort of our same, our similar cultural norms, those are really based on white people, particularly cisgender, white, heterosexual men, um, defining what's normal. And the culture is really developed by and for people to survive. And the people who survive best in that culture are people who meet those same identities. And so when we start to think about people's identities and the intersectional way in which our identities happen. So like for me, as a queer cisgender white man who grew up super gender nonconforming, the norms of society just generally don't work for me. And so the struggles that I have, while they may be different than the quote unquote norm, the the experiences I have are very similar to most people who have had my experience. And so suddenly treating me as a problem or looking at my diagnosis as a problem means that like my whole identity is kind of bottled up in them, that it's a pathology. And there've been, you know, homosexuality was one of those pathologies until the seventies and it was removed. So homosexuality wasn't a pathology before the 18, the late 1800s. And it was for a period of time and now it isn't anymore, but it's just, it's just one of those things like people who experience racism, particularly, especially here in the United States, people of color and black folks, especially like 
they're very similar to one another in ways because of their experience, their shared experience of racism. So the fact that they experienced depression or anxiety or PTSD is actually because society has created an environment where one kind of is anxious if they survive, is depressed if they're survived. And the reality is they also have a ton of strengths, beautiful traits and characteristics, qualities, perspectives of the world that the dominant culture doesn't necessarily always see or value. But if we were to develop a whole guidebook of quote unquote pathologies and the only people we looked at were people of a similar population, we might just start to see that the pathologies are actually different. And so the whole point of coaching is not to diagnose someone, but to see their journey, to see where they're going, to understand the obstacles or challenges that they're facing and getting there, and then to partner together to build the skills, the the beliefs, the knowledge, and the self-awareness they need so that they can be their best self. And that's what I like about coaching because I also get to show up and people are drawn to their coaches and coaches are excited and get drawn to their clients because we join together to work together rather than what we often think about as therapy or counseling, which is this like, quote unquote, objective therapist or counselor. And there's been a lot of people challenging that model and saying like, there's never objectivity, everything's subjective. But a lot of those training programs that that train folks to be counselors and therapists really rely on this idea that like the therapist is neutral. The therapist doesn't bring themselves into the room. We're there to identify the, the problem in our client and then treat that with a variety of different therapeutic techniques, which often work. But sometimes even though they work, the experience that the client goes through is one that they sometimes experience shame. They sometimes feel re-stigmatized and they don't necessarily always feel like their entire identity gets to show up. And so in the intro to intersectionality course, a lot of what we're doing is helping coaches see how they can create space for their clients to show all the way up for them to think about as the coach, how do I show all the way up? What parts of me are in my way? What parts of me are strengths? And then helping folks understand the overlap between those two different people, the coach and the client, um, that overlap is where we get to thrive and function and sometimes hit challenges, but then they're challenges we confront together rather than it's like something's wrong with you and I'm here to fix you, which is that sort of more traditional counseling or, or therapy model. Oh, hell yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, my big takeaway is, especially living in our third year of a pandemic, there's, there is no normal. Um, and we are all trying to survive. And, you know, as, as you so eloquently pointed out, folks that have any level of marginalization in their lives, um, struggle against, you know, that, that norm. Um, another piece that I think needs a little bit of explanation is the word intersectionality itself. Uh, it's a word that I'm familiar with, you're familiar with, but as coaches, as people who are going to work with people, um, it's not often a term that we're familiar with. So what what is an intersectional identity? We all have one. Um, and where do we begin? So Kimberly Crenshaw um, is the person who coined the term intersectionality. She's a, a, a Black woman, legal scholar, and she was 
particularly interested in the the ways in which black women experience the criminal justice system and the ways in which the laws and norms of that system function. And what she recognized and highlighted by coining this term is that it isn't just people's race that creates their experience for them of the world. It isn't just their gender, but the intersection of their race and their gender. So black men experience racism Black women experience racism. They experience a lot of similarities in that in the racism they experience. Women experience sexism. Men experience privilege around their gender. But the, the way sexism and privilege show up for people who also experience racism is different than, for example, what I might experience as a white man in the world. Because my whiteness gives me access to privilege and my manness or my masculinity or my male identity also gives me privilege. So it's like, I've got two privileges working for me. And so she really said, she's like, it's not just a race problem. It's also a gender problem and a race and a gender problem together is where this idea of intersectionality comes in. So over the years, people have expanded that because we also recognize that if you have a disability, a person with a disability who is queer is going to have a different experience than a person with a disability who's heterosexual. And so it's how all these many parts of our life experience shape not only how people treat us, but because of how people treat us, it shapes the way we see the world. It shapes the perspective we have. It shapes how we engage with other people. It shapes the institutions that we have to function within or need to access for support. And so that's what intersectionality is really about. And all of us, like you said, all of us have an intersectional identity. And oftentimes we don't even know which identities we have, because if I don't have a disability, I may not recognize that I have, like I am actually abled because society has made a whole bunch of things accessible to me that people with certain disabilities can't access. But, you know, we think about disabilities as something some people have and other people don't. But on the flip side of not having a disability is having a whole bunch of abilities that society has given me because I fit the norm of what an abled person is. I was just going to say that. So here we are back to this idea of, um, you know, larger pieces of social construction saying hey, these are all the things that fit into the normal box. And if you have all the things that fit into the normal box, then just by default, you get to access society much more easily than everyone else. And when that's true for you, you don't really see what's outside of that box because it doesn't impact you. Do I have that right? Yeah. So like people who can read have really very little idea of what it's like to live in a world where you can't read. Mm -hmm. But that ability to read or not read has a huge impact on how you navigate accessing resources, getting a job, finding your way from one place to another. And so it's important for coaches to be able to see, and this is what we do in the course is like help them understand, like sensitize them to what their identity actually is, what areas in which that identity gives them privilege and access to things and what areas that their identity might limit them because society or the world around them um, oppresses or marginalizes that particular aspect of who they are. 
Absolutely. And, you know, one of the reasons why um, it, it's important for coaches to have access to this kind of education is quite literally, as we all move through the world, you don't know what you don't know. And unless you have exposure to the lived experience outside of your box, uh, you would never know what's going on for someone else or never know why and how it's important to make those considerations within a helping relationship. So for you personally, how did you first get started in this work? What drew you to it? How did I first get drawn to this? Well, how long do we have? <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I, I want to pull you the human into it. And yeah. so, you know, and, and I'm drawn to this work for the some similar reasons. So let's get into it. Yeah. So it's funny. I, I said once to my family that they created opportunities and supported me in ways that developed me to be who I am. <laughs> and my mother right. said, oh no, Justin, we did not shape this. Like you came out this way. Like you were this kid who always asked why, who was curious, who was interested, who asked big questions. Um, <laughs> one of the ones she tells me I asked, we were driving by, I was little, I was like in a car seat. And she said, we were driving by a cemetery and I asked what it was. And she said, that's a cemetery. And I asked, what's that? And she explained, it's where people get buried when they die. And I was like, why do you bury people when they die? <laughs> she Great was like, question. I don't know. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it's one of those big questions that, I don't know, I had the curiosity to ask. So like some of it, I will start by saying is like, because I think it's just who I am. I think I'm a curious person. I think I am truly fascinated and wowed by the world around me. Like I look at uh, nature as one of my happy places because I think it's truly magical that like it all happens and that it all works together in this like ecological system. I think that that's fascinating. And I think humans are also ecological actors. Like we are, we exist in the world just like any other um, organism and we've evolved for a whole variety of reasons the way we have, but like it all works together. So I think part of it is like my worldview is such that I see the world that way. The other part of it is I grew up in a family. My mom was raised Catholic. My dad was raised Jewish, very traditional Catholic and Jewish families. And they met in the late sixties, early seventies through their joint mutual friends. Like my mom's best friend, and my dad's best friend were siblings. And so they kind of um, connected that way. And when they decided to date and get married, their parents, both on both sides, really struggled to accept that a Jew was marrying a Gentile and that a Catholic was marrying a Jew. Like they both, I'm using the language of their two families, um, they both really struggled and put a whole bunch of expectations on my parents. And my parents were like, we're getting married. Like, this is not a, can we get married? This is, we are getting married because we love each other. And we want to be together. And they got married in my mom's family's living room because they couldn't do it in a church and they couldn't do it in a synagogue. And then I was born a few years later as a surprise. Um, and both of the families responded to the first born male in their family and born 
firstborn male in a Catholic family, firstborn male in a, in a Jewish family are both a big deal. And I was not named in a synagogue. I was not baptized in a church. And both sets of my f- grandparents were very much like, we're, we're going to raise you to teach you this stuff. But the beauty of it for me is that I got to learn about faith from people who are passionate about their faiths. And in a way that like I was able to contrast them because they just kind of told me what things were from their perspective. And then I made sense of it. And if I would ever ask my parents, like, I don't understand how Jesus came back to life. And I don't understand why we leave the door open for Elijah at Passover. Like my family would just explain it to me matter of fact. And they would always say something along the lines of like, some people believe this, some people believe that. And so I think that was also a part of just shaping that like people see things differently. And then in high school, so I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, about an hour Northwest of Philadelphia, which now is actually like a McMansion industrial park suburb. But back then in the seventies and eighties, it was like rural farmland. Um, And so I didn't really get much exposure to difference. Like we were the Jewish kids at school, even though we weren't Jewish and I was gender nonconforming and there were very few gender nonconforming kids in my school. And when I started to grow up and faced a lot of bullying and harassment, like my family just always supported me for who I was. They did the best they could in an environment that was really hard to do that. But I always got this message, like I was okay. Like I was me and that that was okay as hard as it was. Sometimes I got messages that I was responsible for how other people treated me, which I've since done a lot of therapy to work myself through. Um, But I think some of it's like just those life experiences. And then in high school, uh, I heard a loudspeaker announcement that our school had a sister school in Japan. And if anybody was interested in going to Japan and doing this exchange program, go to this meeting. And I went to the meeting, naive, little Justin, skinny as a rail and uh, with my little curly hair and came home and was like, I want to go to Japan. And my parents' response was, and I was in eighth or ninth grade at this point, was like, okay, I mean, you're going to have to figure out how to pay for this. And I was like, that's fine. We sell donuts and bagels in the cafeteria in the morning. And that's how we raise money to do this trip. And literally that's that, that trip to Japan not only shaped my understanding of a place in the world that like I had never, like all I knew about Japan was that like my grandfather fought in world war two and he would use bad language to talk about Japanese people. But I was interested and I went and I was the only boy that went. It was an all girls school in Japan. The girls were fascinated by my hair, by my eyes, that I was a boy. And I felt this sense of otherness. And it was weird, but it also felt like it's like, again, like it's just part of the human experience that like we see new things and we're curious about them. And that was new for me as a cisgender white man. And I didn't know I was gay yet, but they used to say like, are you gay? I didn't know. I learned the, <laughs> learned the word for gay in Japanese when I didn't even know I was gay yet. Um, 
and then anyway, so that really informed a lot of things. And then I ended up learning Spanish in eighth grade and I just loved learning Spanish and I became a Spanish teacher. And people often ask me like, why did you learn Spanish? And because I needed to pick a language, that was the first reason. But the second reason was because once I started learning the language and could communicate with other people and read books and things in other languages, I started to learn about all these different parts of the worlds and points of view that I would never have had access to. And that's mm. the thing I think that I love most about being bilingual is that not only do I get to speak a language that a lot of people speak and communicate with them, but I get to see the world through their eyes in their language. And that just like, I can't get enough of that. And then queerness and then sexuality and like all the things that I have done since then. But I think like a lot of those are the building blocks of my like human experience that led me here. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, first of all. And I love that um, deeply personal window, you know, into your life. If if we had many more hours, I have a million questions. And um, I think, you know, what we talked about earlier, just the depth of this field, this space, this niche, you know, we're only scratching the surface in terms of what we're talking about now. You only scratch the surface in terms of um, what you orient our students to so that they have enough ethically in order to function as coaches. Uh, and there are folks who do the work that you do in really taking this out into the world and helping others wrap their heads and hearts and minds and organizations and lives around it. So last question, what would you tell coaches who are looking to specialize in this and who are looking at the world today and saying, damn, I need to get out there? Looking to specialize in intersectional work. Yeah, cultural competency, cultural responsiveness, kind of becoming another Justin. Well, the world doesn't need another me, but it needs a lot of people who care about the things I care about. So cultural responsiveness, you had asked earlier um, what that means. And basically what it means is to respond to the way somebody else sees the world. So if somebody else sees the world through the lens of relationships, then me giving them a task-oriented way of thinking about a problem or a challenge is just not going to work for them because they don't, people from cultures that see things through the relationship lens see that the world works because of people and how they're connected to each other. For those of us from cultures who see things through the task perspective, we see that the world works because people get things done and they do them in certain ways and in certain processes. And that's how the world works. Those are two fundamentally different ways of understanding how to go about something. And so when we're culturally responsive, we first have the skills to see the system that somebody's working within, how it works, how to survive and be successful in it. Um, and then when we respond to it, what we're doing is then we give people the skills that will work in that context. Because if I tell somebody you just have to use this. And this is in the sexuality education world. We do this with condom education a lot where we're like a condom will work if you put it on like this and you use it every time. But if I'm talking to someone who doesn't actually make their own decisions about contraception or birth control or who 
has a relationship with someone where a condom would come across as threatening, this, the task oriented, like the process of using a condom is not going to work for them. We need to teach them ways to think about and talk about condoms in the context of relationships, the ways in which they're positive, the ways in which they're negative, some of the challenges people have with them, how we can make using a condom something that the relationship chooses to do together um, that strengthens the relationship. Like that, those are the differences. And so cultural responsiveness is about having the skills to understand culture and then teaching people the skills to respond to it. If people want to do, if coaches want to be culturally responsive practitioners and want to kind of specialize in that, there's a lot of people in the world who need support because they're in interracial or intercultural relationships, because they do work. And now we see this more and more. People are doing work with teams that are based all over the world. And so teaching a group of people who are based out of Minneapolis to work with a group of people who are based out of uh, Bangladesh, like those are two very different cultural systems. And if those two things have to work together, then we need to teach the people how to work across cultures, within their own cultures, and understand those dynamics. So like there is a ton of applications for um, culturally responsive coaching. The other thing is even within a culture, so like within the culture of the United States or within the culture of queerness, there's such diversity. And one of the things that people sometimes miss when they're working with people they perceive to be similar to them is they miss the diversity that's there because they're so joined by like a camaraderie and a togetherness and a similarity. But when we do that, it's great. And there's a lot of really good reasons to do that. But if we miss a really essential key difference, we're going to miss a real opportunity to be supportive or encouraging or challenging with our clients. And so part of why culturally responsive practice and intersectionality are so essential for all coaches is because it's everywhere. Um, Yeah, yeah. you're right. It is everywhere. And, you know, I think when we really niche it down, when you really come to work with people and what I love about coaching is that coach goes into a situation, assuming that they don't have any of the answers, but they do have questions. And so if someone's in front of me and I need to understand the context, the way that they see things, the lens through which they see things, then I can help them become more effective in their own lives. Yeah, exactly. And intersectionality can also be a tool that our clients walk away with, but then it helps improve their lives and the, yeah. the whatever is the thing that they're coming to coaching for. This has been a beautiful conversation. It is rare in my life that I am the one that just shuts up and gets to sit there, you know, in awe of listening to someone else. So thank you so much <laughs> for the You're opportunity. Welcome. And when we're we're sending our muffins out into the world, of course, um, if you're interested, you can come work directly with Justin through our program. And then otherwise, where can folks find you to contact you? Uh, my website is sexualitysolutions.com. Fantastic. And we'll have that information in the show notes for anyone who wants to click around. Um, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely wonderful and we'll do it again soon. Thanks, Noel. 
Thanks for listening to Everything Life Coaching. If you're feeling the draw to become a coach, head to journey.co slash everything to explore a new career that brings fulfillment, gives you a true sense of purpose and a strong community to do it in. We created Journey Coaching to equip you with the tools, training and community you need to attain your goals. Join Journey Coaching and begin your journey towards personal freedom and a transformative state of growth today. That's jrni.co slash everything.